afternoon. This is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County, welcoming you to the April 2022 edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, our monthly live interview show, the second Monday of each month on WPKN 89.5 FM, bringing you news and information about the arts and culture across coastal Fairfield County. Our subject this month is the work of the Greenwich Historical Society and its dedication to uncover, elevate and amplify some of the lost or underrepresented voices in local history. And specifically, its second annual series of lectures, Shining a Light, with speakers who are dedicated to interpreting, restoring and preserving these histories. With me in the studio today are Deborah Mackey, Executive Director and CEO of the Greenwich Historical Society. Welcome, Deborah. Good afternoon, David. And on the line are Heather Lodge, Manager of Youth and Family Programs, and Stephanie Barnett. Barnett, thank you, Deborah. <laughs> um, welcome, Heather and Stephanie. Hi, David. Thank you for having us. Hello, thank you. Also in the studio is one of uh, the three speakers in this year's Shining a Light series, Dennis Cullerton, founder of the Witness Stones Project, based in Guilford, Connecticut, but actively engaged in Greenwich with the Historical Society, Sacred Heart Greenwich, and the Greenwich Academy. Welcome, Dennis. Thank you for driving down from Guilford today. Thank you, David. Our third guest today, um, our third advertised guest today, was Maisa Tisdale, President and CEO of the Mary and Eliza Freeman Center for History and Community here in Bridgeport. Unfortunately, Maisa was sick today, and um, Stephanie will be answering some of the questions um, that we had prepared for Maisa. You can hear Maisa's recent talk and Dennis's recent talk in this series, Shining a Light, on the website of the Historical Society. That's greenwichhistory.org. And the third lecture in this series is coming up April 21st with Dr. Meadow Dibble speaking on The Diseased Ship, a cautionary tale of New England's twin plagues. But let's start with you, Deborah. Um, and some of the basics. Please tell us a little bit about the Greenwich Historical Society, when it was founded. What's special about it? What should people know? Well, thank you, David, for this opportunity uh, to talk about an institution very dear to my heart, the Greenwich Historical Society. Um, we've celebrated our 90th anniversary, actually starting in December. We're going through a year of uh, recognizing 90 years right. of being a nonprofit educational institution in the town of Greenwich. Uh, and since 1957, we've been located in Coscob, Connecticut. Mm -hmm. We're headquartered at the Bush Holly Historic Site, um, and uh, which was a maritime center in the 18th century and an art colony at the turn of the 20th century. That's great. That's so we, pretty amazing. Yes. yes. And today, it's uh, the Bush Holly Site is a national historic landmark. Uh, a, a great distinction. Um, so in terms of, you know, what you should know about the Historical Society, well, of course, we're very proud that we're accredited by the American Alliance of Museums. We have a professional staff with a full-time archivist and research assistant. 
curators for our exhibitions, collections, and interpretation, and very dedicated educators, uh, who two of whom you'll meet uh, today on this program. We have an over 50-year record of serving as an assured experience for all Greenwich schools. We uh-huh. teach local history mm-hmm. through the Bush Holly uh, House and its site. Um, so that's uh, something we're very dedicated to, and it's part of our identity. And mm-hmm. uh, and then 90 years, uh, we've been a community advocate for preservation. We do that working collaboratively with local organizations and preservationists to designate National Register and local historic districts and properties, and to generally educate the public about the history of the community. And you have an annual preservation um, celebration, is that right? We have, uh, uh, before pre-COVID, yes. we had a, <laughs> an annual um, celebration. We usually uh, recognize at least uh, four or five landmark buildings every year, um, and we have a program in which we do bronze plaques uh, that the owners then display on those buildings, and we have a, a celebration to educate the community about mm-hmm. the history of those places and honor the people that are out there preserving them. You know, as a historical society, we can't preserve these places. It right. really is individuals and people who own them that have to do the work. Right. But um, to borrow a phrase, you can shine a light on <laughs> on what is being done in the community. Exactly. That's great. Exactly. So now you've been there for quite a while. Um, what would you say some of the major shifts or landmarks you've experienced um, at the society over your, is it 25 years? Has it been that long? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Well, um, I think I'm just going to really want to step back to about 2018, which saw the culmination of a master plan that we had lo- had developed for mm-hmm. quite a while to expand the campus and to significantly increase our programs and services to our community and our region. And it began with the acquisition in 2012 of Toby's Tavern, which was the last remaining commercial building on the Cobb Landing. And we began our study and efforts to restore its appearance to the uh, Bar Colony era, working with um, David Scott Parker Architects. Ah, yes. We built a, a, a wonderful new museum and library building. It's won many state and national awards. We have uh, expanded green space for outdoor concerts, events, and tavern garden markets, which, by the way, were just essential to keep ourselves vibrant and able to serve our community during the uh, pandemic. Mm-hmm. We made the site accessible for the first time to the physically challenged. You know, the Bush Alley House sits 30 feet high up from the sidewalk area. Our parking, mm-hmm. everything is now completely accessible. Uh, we added two exhibition galleries, expanded the public programs. And we endowed free education programs for students in Greenwich's Title I elementary schools. That might be a surprise to some people, Uh. thinking of Greenwich's reputation as a wealthy community. But we have four schools that qualify um, as Title I schools, where a majority of the students uh, receive reduced lunches. Yes. Well, thank you so much for um, mentioning that, because that's something... You know, the Cultural Alliance covers 15 towns, and um, very often we feel that people peg towns in a certain way, um, not understanding the the uh, rich diversity that um, each of the towns really encompasses. Yes, that's definitely true about Greenwich, and mm-hmm. um, because we have a perception of being, uh, and we are predominantly white, there's 74% of our population is, but... We're increasingly diverse. Um, there's a 12% Hispanic and Latino, five, 7% who are Asian, 5% who identify with two or more races, 
and 2.7% black or African-American. So a lot more diverse than some people would yeah, imagine absolutely. a community like Greenwich uh, to be. So one of those um, shifts over the years is certainly the uncovering of the history of enslaved people in Greenwich. Um, sort of on the, on the, over the long haul, how would you characterize maybe the way that you, the society, have incorporated this fact of slavery in Greenwich? How has it changed over, say, your 25 years? Well, not unlike many historical societies, you know, the efforts to save Bush Alley House in the 1950s was very much focused on its colonial history right. and the story of the wealthy yes. merchant family that owned uh-huh. it uh-huh. and furnishing the house with all these wonderful artifacts to represent that. Uh, but in mm. 1998, we began the process. It was a four-year program to overhaul the interpretation of Bush Alley House. We refurnished eight um, historic rooms, and four of those were devoted to telling this colonial story mm. of the Bush family um, merchant family who uh, survived the American Revolution, and four of the rooms uh, were devoted to the Holly Boarding House and the Cascabar County. But as what was different this time was that telling the story of the enslaved was a part of the challenge that we undertook. And though it wasn't evident at first that we would install a slave quarter, that point of view gradually emerged uh, from the curatorial team uh, and mm. architectural team because there was evidence of a back kitchen with a stair to an attic directly above it. And this huh. convinced us that this was the most likely work and sleeping space for the 15 enslaved So literally, literally you were uncovering this. These were like clues that you were... They are clues. And sometimes people say, well, you don't know that, you can't prove it. But, you know, I like to say you can't prove that, you know, David Bush, you know, necessarily lose one room over another. You have inventories, you have to go based on the, the scant evidence that you can find in primary source documents. And we feel they're very strongly indicating, and the patterns in New England are um, are, 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 are there elsewhere um, to represent that you know slaves in the Northeast generally slept in attics and cellars and you know above kitchens. And a house that now, how old is Bush Holly House? The house dates to uh, uh, 1730. Hmm. So yes. So over the centuries, I mean, it's changed um, quite a it, bit. Yes, it has. Um, you know, I, I should say that as we've installed this slave quarter in Bush Holly House, we were one of only two um, historic sites in Connecticut that had slave quarters. The other was in Wethersfield. And this was several years before the publication of Complicity, uh, the work of um, Hartford Current journalist to shine a light on slavery in the North. Mm. So we were really very early in taking this this step to to create a, a physical space that was devoted to, you know, a slave quarter. Yeah, yeah it's very moving. I remember yes. seeing. And seeing I should say to, to answer the other part of your question, you know, we've evolved since then um, to focus less on the room mm-hmm. and the uh, and 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 the generic story of the individuals who were enslaved there, to uh, giving the enslaved people the same attention and research that were devoted early on to understanding the. David and Sarah Bush family. Mm. I think that's what's really changed. Right. So the house really is telling many different stories, and all of the stories have similar weight. Yeah, yes. that's, that's great. So tell us about this Shining a Light series, how that got started, and what you covered in the first series uh, last year. Yes, yeah, so uh, we created Shining a Light um as you said earlier, to elevate and amplify underrepresented voices in local history. 
to highlight the stories and the research, and especially the people who are dedicated to interpreting, restoring, and preserving mm. these histories. So in 2021, um, we uh, our series featured Teresa Vega. She's a historian and a right. cultural anthropologist mm. um, who has been unearthing not only her own genealogy, but stories of a free African-American community in Greenwich, uh, called in an area called Hangroot, um, between 1730 and the late 19th century. So that's mm. quite an ex- exciting work that she's doing. And she was one of our early speakers. And then we uh, invited Keith Stokes, who's an advisor to the National Trust, who spoke on God's Little Acre. God's Little Acre is the largest and most intact colonial-era African-American burial ground in the country. Um, and it um, culminated in the first town, or I should say our series culminated in the first town-wide public ceremony to witness and install uh, witness stones uh, behind Bush Holly House, which you'll learn more about a little later. So in 2022, then, we returned uh, to the founder of the Witness Stones Project, Dennis Culleton, to highlight his work to honor the history of the enslaved in Connecticut and beyond. And I know you'll hear a lot more about that. Um, We then most recently... um, we're delighted to have Maisa Tisdell. I'm so sorry she won't be here, but she's the mm-hmm. fo- president and founder of the Mary and Eliza Freeman Center in Bridgeport, doing amazing work in that area. Um, and uh, then we're, as you mentioned, we will be ending this year's series with uh, bringing Dr. Metal Dibble to our program. She's the executive director of a, the Atlantic Black Box, which is focused on uncovering New England's role in the slave trade. Great. I can't wait. I've heard both of these, and they're, they're really... Um uh, very, very engaging uh, talks. Well, let's bring Heather in now. Heather is the um, education manager at the Greenwich Historical Society. Heather, I believe you introduced the Witness Stones Project to the Historical Society. Is that right? That's right, David. Um, actually, it was really funny when I was looking through my notes when I interviewed for the position at the Historical Society. I saw a little note on my list of things to ask about, asking if they had heard about the Witness Jones Project, because it was already something near and dear to my heart. And I was like, oh, even if I don't get this job, I want them to know that this is something that exists and something that they could be a part of. That's great. So, and not to steal Dennis's thunder, but I wonder if you could just give us a little thumbnail of the project as you've known it for so long and, and what it does. Yes, I'd be happy to. So the purpose of the Witness Stones Project is to revive the stories of those who were enslaved in our communities, our towns, um, find them with school children, work to tell those stories and piece it together, then present it to the public with a public ceremony in which a memorial witness stone is placed with that individual's name and the things that together with the students we have discovered about them. Because these people have lived truly incredible lives Mm. and doing this process with the students, one, it shines a light on that slavery existed in our hometowns, but it also shows how much a part of a society enslaved people and later free people of color were and how much they built here in Connecticut. And that's a really enlightening process for these kids. And tell us how you got to know about this. Yes. So I grew up in Madison, Connecticut, Mm -hmm. which is next door to Guilford. Mm -hmm. Guilford likes to claim that we were once part of them, which Uh I guess is true. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so I grew up not far from 
where the Witness Stones was founded. In fact, I worked at a museum called the Highland House Museum in Guildford, which was built in 1640 and had an enslaved person who lived in the house. Um, Her name was Candace, and she was one of the very first people that a Witness Stone was placed for. She is part of that original family that Dennis did the research on. So when those original stones were placed, I was a docent there, so I was not heavily involved, but Mm -hmm. I got to watch into the process and see everything that was happening. And it just took my breath away. It seemed so important. Right. So I I can understand how you felt as if you should be an ambassador for this project. Um, Pretty exciting. Um, Yes. It was great to see it come up from really the roots. Dennis and other people in the community worked really hard to make it happen. so tell it was us, great to see it become an official nonprofit. <laughs> right. So tell us how you brought it to Deborah's attention. Yes. Well, we had been working with Kelly Bridges, who was a teacher at Sacred Heart, which is a school, a private school in Greenwich. And she had been bringing her students to the Greenwich Historical Society for a number of years by the time I started uh-huh. to do a general slavery in Connecticut tour based off the information we knew. It just happened that the same month that I started working at the Greenwich Historical Society, she heard an interview of Dennis's. Um, So she called up the Greenwich Historical Society. She's like, I've heard about this really amazing program. I want to evolve this tour that we're doing already into this to allow my students to do original research and dive into this more. Have you heard of it? Mm. And I was like, I have heard of it. (laughs) In fact, that is my very goal. I would love to do this with you and expand this. So we had some meetings, did some initial talks, and we took what was already there and added the witness stones to it to make it a more involved process. It's actually an incredible story. Uh, Clearly, this was meant to be, Dennis. Yes. Yes, truly. I was so... I think excited is probably the wrong word, Um, but I was excited when I was interviewing at the Greenwich Historical Society to see this interpreted enslaved quarters, because it showed that this was a historical society that was already placing value on teaching this history, and there was places to go with it. There was more that we could do, and I just happened to know a path that we could take, and it's been a wonderful experience. Right. Um, And having the house physically there, I'm sure has uh, adds a tremendous amount to it because you can some, somehow feel the the past in the present, um, the, ma- the magic of these historical uh, structures. Most definitely. Part of what I do with the kids in non-COVID years is that they come and they do do a tour of the house. And we had a pre-existing slavery tour, but what I've done is I've edited it so that every year the tour focuses around the individual that they are studying who uh-huh. lived in those walls. And we go through each room of the house telling the things that that individual would have been in charge of, would have done what their family was like. And mm-hmm. later, if they were freed, what they achieved in freedom. And it really grounds the kids in this person's story to see where they slept and ate and worked. It makes it very real for them. That's tremendous. Um, thank you. Yeah. Um, If you're just joining us, this is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County and our April 2022 edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, our monthly interview show 
on WPKN 89.5 FM. Our subject today is Shining a Light, both on the work of the Greenwich Historical Society in elevating and amplifying some of the underrepresented voices in local history, but specifically on the Society's second annual series of lectures titled Shining a Light, with speakers who themselves are dedicated to interpreting, restoring and preserving these hidden histories. So, Dennis, uh, I think it's time for you to tell us more about this um, an ama- amazing project. Heather gave us a, a little thumbnail. So can you tell us more about the project, how it got underway, and the scope of what you're doing today? Sure, David. And, and Heather did a great job, and, um, and I want to certainly uh, thank uh, Deborah for being welcoming to our project. Uh, not everybody is at a place yet where they can or want to tell the story of the enslaved people associated with the historical sites, mm. but um, Greenwich was very far down the road uh, mm. when, when they asked us to join them in their journey. Um, the Witness Stones project started in um, <clears throat> 2017 while I was still teaching eighth grade in Guilford. Ah. And I, um, when my own kids got older, I would spend a lot of the summer doing original research. So I started um, focusing on this woman named Harriet Beecher Stowe, whose mother and father grew <laughs> up in Guilford. Right. And, um, and looking at her, uh, her father's autobiography and her biography written by her son, Edward, and in, within them, they mentioned enslaved people. And, and it was kind of shocking to me. I grew up in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. I knew about slavery in the South. I knew about, um, I knew a little bit about the West Indies trade, but I didn't put together the pieces of how slavery was embedded in our society and how the West Indies trade, which was really profiting from slavery, uh, from the sugar plantations, how that was part of New England's story. And so as I dug up information, I put it together in a short little 45-page booklet and presented it to the Guilford Free Library where excuse me, a friend of mine, Doug Nigren, was in the audience, listened to me. Um, he's a, a family counselor in um, – and a German scholar, and he he went to oh. Germany, came back, and said, "Could we remember enslaved people here the way uh, Jewish Jews are remembered in Germany, where they lived freely before they were kidnapped and murdered under the Holocaust?" So I immediately went online, saw that there were sixty thousand Stolpersteine stumbling stones installed across Central Europe, and began to reimagine my research, and it really helped me focus how we could bring this research into the classroom. Right. Can you repeat that German word? <laughs> I can try. It's Stop, Stolperstein, and it means stumbling stone. Oh. Um, and, uh, Why from a, stumbling stone? Well, there's a few reasons. For hmm. One is you want to stumble over the history of the past that isn't there. Most of these stones yeah. are put in communities where Jews live that where Jews no longer live. And hmm. so it's it's seeing people who, you know, stumbling over the past. And I had also read that it was from an awful um, kind of a, a, a term people would use when they tripped in Germany. And people would say, oh, you must have stumbled over a Jew or over a Jew's head or something oh. like that. So it was like a, huh. a bad, you know, yeah. it's like eeny, meeny, miny, mo type thing and that we Ooh. would say. Yeah. Um, and, and that the term kind of combines there, but it, it has this full meaning because when you see that stone in front of a building that no Jews live in today, right. uh, it helps you remember the past. Just like when we put a stone 
in front of or adjacent to a building in a community or in a neighborhood where the vast majority of the people are white, it helps you remember that in the past there were many more um, African-Americans were a larger percentage of the communities, especially, we'll say, the suburban communities. So in your, Dennis, in your lecture a couple of weeks ago, you talked quite a bit about how the New England economy uh, in the 18th century yes. um, was massively dependent on the West Indies trade, um, something that today's residents probably know little about, even if their ancestors were involved. Could, could you briefly sketch the magnitude of that trade and the period over which it flourished? Yes, um, the, it, it flourished during the pre um, revolutionary times. And, and I like to say that our, our communities didn't weren't established in these houses that are still left extant, aren't there because people sold hay to each other. We talk about <laughs> subsistence farming, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. everybody had a surplus. They were trying to sell something too. So every farmer was making extra cheese to put out to the market. Every farmer was growing extra hay and extra crops. Every farmer uh, who had a woodlot was cutting down trees and somebody was turning them into barrel staves. Hmm. So if you look at the even the roads here, how the roads go right down to Coscob and how the roads <laughs> go to the ocean or, you know, I'm up in, um, you know, Woodstock, Connecticut, and one road, you know, the road goes to Boston and, and Hartford, you know, the old colonial roads. Everybody was bringing stuff to market. And and what I showed in that, in that presentation is research that showed in the um, – in the late uh, 1760s that half of what was left the ports in Connecticut and the ports that had custom houses were New London and, and New Haven. And half of what came back was from the West Indies trading with, for trading our horses, our mm. cattle, our beef in the barrel, our, um, our butter, our, our, our uh, cheese and our, barrel staves, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of barrel staves. We were trading with the West Indies to bring back sugar, molasses, and, and, and other things. And the sugar and molasses were, were uh, produced on some of the most vicious plantations that you would find anywhere, where people were worked so hard that they had to be replaced because they couldn't reproduce. Huh. And that even though the the ocean around the West Indies was teeming with fish. They wanted to work the workers so hard that they would buy the fish from fishermen mm -hmm. in the North Atlantic. And even today in the West Indies, bacalao, a dried codfish meal yeah. is from the, you know, codfish doesn't, <laughs> you can't get that fishing, you know, right. in the West Indies. So that was part of that whole trade. And, um, and, and it was so much that it, in a sense, floated all boats, literally and figuratively. And I think David Bush in his, <laughs> Probate inventory had a had a was it Sally, Sally Sloop Sally yeah right. Sloop Sally so so that that was part of his daily life was filling vessels and sending them to the West Indies hmm. uh, and bringing back and sometimes they brought back besides sugar and molasses they brought back enslaved people who had been previously brought to the West Indies from Africa. Okay. Um. So much of your work as a researcher, Dennis, and as a teacher of history, is to uncover evidence of the use of enslaved people in uh, the Northeast in sometimes unexpected or obscure sources. Sometimes these are gravestones, street names that have changed. But then I noticed there's a huge range of documents that you've mentioned, uh, emancipation documents, property inventories, 
vital records, census. There's a lot of detective work here.、Um, tell us something about how you come across some of these resources. What,、uh, what skills you've learned? I mean, as a teacher, you've become a researcher, an historian, really practic- practical. Yes, and, and thank you.、Uh, but you know, there's there, it, each town is different, each community is different. So when I work in Um, in in a community, oftentimes I'll look at their church records first. The church records have been、um, they、uh, they've been indexed for many towns in in Connecticut and archived digitally. That our friends at the、uh, the Church of Jesus Christ Latter Day Saints, otherwise known as Ancestry dot com, <laughs> has made these records、right. available、yeah. to us. And you can go into a town like Norwich and find h- hundreds of enslaved people listed in the church records, along with The enslaved persons, maybe their parents, and also who enslaved them.、Mm-hmm. And then when we find who enslaved them, you can go to that person, say Christopher Leffingwell, and pull out his documents from his、uh, property records associated with his name,、uh, where the archives are,、uh, emancipations he might have been involved in. Happened. Lucky for us, Christopher Leffingwell, one of his descendants, gave a bunch of his stuff to、uh, Yale University. And、um, the Yale Museum, I mean the New Haven Museum. So we have access to those documents today.、Um, but sometimes we're looking through the property records in a town because after 1792, if you had an enslaved person and they were between a certain age、mm-hmm. and they were healthy,、yeah. you wanted to free them in the property records so you wouldn't be responsible for them in their old age. So sometimes it's there, or sometimes it might be in an anecdote. And in, in, in Greenwich. They had already archived some of these documents from the Bush family, so we have emancipations. We have a list of enslaved people owned by the Bushes and when they were born, so they knew when they were supposed to free them because of another law in 1784 that said、uh, if a person born to an enslaved woman after March 1st would only be enslaved until they were 25 years old. So、mm-hmm. they kept records of how when they were born, so they knew, and and the town knew when they were supposed to、huh. be freed. Yeah. And of course, one of the shocking things is, as you displayed in your lecture,、um, inventories that、um, give us an example in which enslaved people were listed amongst. Yeah,、uh, we, we find enslaved people. Two things that we find is first, we find well, they're listed as a piece of property, oftentimes in a barn, and sometimes adjacent to farm animals. So you see them listed there with their name. And the value that they themselves had, and oftentimes, like for instance, for David Bush on the page of inventory, you'll see the enslaved people are very valuable. The only other thing on that page, single thing on that page, is more valuable than the enslaved people is the sloop. I think it was a Sally.、Uh, I think it was sloop Sally was the only thing that was that、hmm. way that that was valued more because. Enslaved people were a means of production. They weren't. Right. They weren't、right. just farmhands. They、yeah. were. That you know, we say David Bush was a wealthy entrepreneur, and then we say David Bush held fifteen people in captivity. Those two things mean you know that he、yeah. said a wealthy entrepreneur because, because、yes. he held fifteen people.、Right. He had fifteen labor years of you know hundreds of labor years of people's efforts to bring him more wealth.、Mm. Well, I encourage everybody、um, that is interested to go to the Greenwich Historical Society's website and uh, um, see the talk that that Dennis gave. It's it was、um, I learned a lot. It's uh, um, really fascinating.、Uh, tell us a little bit about how you then bring this to the classroom. I mean, you are a teacher. There's this huge resor- set of resources you've discovered. 
how do you bring this this idea of disremembered history to school children? Well, we we do it through this, you know, method is once I realized I wanted to use these documents in a classroom and I started out with kind of upper middle school, lower high school in Uh mind is how do we what what do we need to be able to ask a 13 year old to look at a four page will that's written (laughs) in script (laughs) and extract information? So we, we take the documents and we transcribe them. We look at where the most important information is. We give them the whole original document and the transcribed document, but then we highlight the areas that are that will they'll get the most meaning from mm. oftentimes. And then we've developed these five lenses. Uh, I call them the five mm. themes of slavery that have been developed through the Witness Stones Project. So the students are looking f- through these lenses, uh, and, and the five themes are dehumanization, treatment of enslaved, paternalism, economics of slavery, and agency and resistance. And and the most important of all, they're all important, but the most important is agency and resistance. We're not here to re-victimize the enslaved people. We're not here to put them in a box someplace. We're here to tell the story of mm-hmm. a full story of, of rich people. And, and Maesa, in a sense, is telling that next story, isn't she, with the free black community in Bridgeport? What, who are these people that were enslaved who did they become? How were they able to, uh, you know, over overcome all these prejudices and things, uh, and institutions that were trying to hold them down, both in slavery and and uh, and also in freedom, and and sometimes we're telling stories of people who were never freed, but we can try to extract from, and we call it reading across the grain because the people who wrote hmm. the stories weren't necessarily writing stories to elevate their enslaved people or to an elevation sure. of free blacks because yeah. they want to, if yeah. you want to keep somebody down, <laughs> right. if you want to dehumanize right. them, that's how you keep somebody down. You don't elevate them and do that. So we have to go in there and maybe find the documents that elevate. Maybe we find that that uh, that Cuff Jr. went out and bought property after he, was, he gained mm. his freedom. And then we share that with the students so they can say he became a part mm. of the economy not as an enslaved person, but as a free member of society. So that's that, that's kind of, and then I give workshops to the teachers, and they bring it to the students. I see. And tell us about the responses from the from the students, from the children. Uh, it, it goes everything from from being shocked, I think, to uh, one of the things that I'm surprised because, like I say, I'm a I'm a teacher, but I wear the hat of a historian, so I try to be serious and things like that. And 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 I and I should be. It's a serious topic, but the kids um, they get emotional. They they feel they have feelings about what they read. So I we we aim them to write a narrative nonfiction biographical mm. sketch, but they want to do a reflective piece. They want to do poetry. They want to do artwork. If you saw the artwork at the installation ceremony last year hmm. from these uh, uh, middle school and, and high school students, it, it knocks your socks off. That hmm. that wasn't in, an intentional piece of the Witness Stones project as a, as a curriculum mm-hmm. piece. But what ended up happening is the kids, they, they go to their teachers and say, I, I want to do, what else can I do? How else can I share what I'm feeling about the story of Candace or the story of, of, of Cole or the story of Pompeii? Wow. That's very moving. If you're just joining us, uh, this is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County and our April 2022 edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, our monthly interview show on WPKN 89.5 FM. Our subject today is Shining a Light, 
both on the work of the Greenwich Historical Society in elevating and amplifying some of the underrepresented voices in local history, and specifically on its second annual series of lectures titled Shining a Light, with speakers who themselves are dedicated to interpreting, restoring and preserving these hidden histories. Heather, I'd like to call you back in now um, and um, how you established and have developed the Witness Stones project at the Society since 2019. So what's been your role in, in, in doing that? Well, I was very lucky that we already had a foundation of sorts um, from this pre-existing slavery in Connecticut tour that we did with Sacred Heart. Mm -hmm. Um, And from there, I, as I mentioned earlier, made it more about the individual each class is studying. So working with the schools here is really a six-month process. At the beginning of the school year, I meet with the teachers And we decide which one of the 15 enslaved people from the Bush Holly House we're going to study this year. The first Mm -hmm. year, we did Cull and Candace. Then the next year, we did Cull's Cull's wife, Patience, and Candace's daughter, Hester. So that's the first big decision. Mm -hmm. So you have to know who you're going to look for before you go looking. And I spent a couple months (laughs) trying to find all these documents for the children. I go to the town archives. I spend a lot of time on Ancestry.com. I look through our archives because some of this research had been done already when we put in the interpreted enslaved quarters. And I gather everything I can. Some people, like patients, I can only find about five, six documents that just pertain to her. But others, like one of the people we're studying this year, called Junior, I found about 30 documents about him and his wife. Uh Yes. It's incredible. So I gave that together, and I give it to the teachers who've gone through this training with Dennis, who present it to their students. Um, Once the students have had time to go through it, they do a QA and a with me where they come back and they're like, wait, we've looked at these things. We're confused here. We have a question here. (laughs) And some of that is just the larger context of the history of the house and the town that I can easily fill in because I'm not giving them any documents on David and Sarah Bush. It's not their story, but sometimes you need to know a bit about them to fill Mm -hmm. in that context. So I answer those questions. They go back, they do their projects with their teachers. They write the stories. They create beautiful pieces of art. Both the teachers that we work with now have really embraced incorporating art into this project. Hmm. And at the end of it all, they hopefully come for a field trip, see the actual (laughs) site, and then they come back a second time to place the memorial stone, which the students have, there's a bit of a format to the stone, but the students decide what goes on the stone, how they want to remember someone. So, for example... Patients, who I mentioned before, they thought it was very important that people remember that she was a mother, like their mothers, Mm. that she raised six children who she loved dearly. And the same thing with Cole, that they put, yes, he's a landowner, but he's also a father, and he did so much for his kids. So it's interesting to see what the kids internalize and what they really stick to in these stories. Fascinating. Um can you tell us a little bit about the then the event that you held in 
last year and your plans for this year? Yes. So last year was our first placement store in a placement ceremony. It was very exciting. We were supposed to have one the year before, but as we mm. all know, COVID happened. The schools closed. We closed. <laughs> so last year was the ceremony for four individuals, patients in call and Hester and Candace. All the students were invited, but because of the regulations for COVID for the schools, not all of the oh. students could make it. Yeah. Actually, in a funny little twist of fate, basically all the students who came and most of the students did come were more or less playing hooky on the down low. <laughs> they were like, this is more important than class. My oh. parents are going to call me out sick for the afternoon and we're going to go to this ceremony to celebrate this person <laughs> we've researched. One of the students told me it was the most important thing that they've done their wow. whole high school career. Hmm. Yeah, so a student spoke for each of the individuals we were placing stones for, told their life story to the crowd. We had a crowd of about 300 people there from the community. Um, we had some community leaders like Teresa Vega, who's a descendant of enslaved people from town speak, as well as Sveva Nins, who's pastor of one of the Baptist churches in town. They said their remarks. And at the end of the ceremony, we put in the stones um, adjacent to the Bush Holly House in the wing of the building where these enslaved individuals would have lived, where they lived on the property. It's all very exciting. Mm. And this, um, this uh, year, you're doing a doing similar uh, ceremony? Yes. So this is part of the Witness Stones project. This is the outreaching part, because the idea is not to keep this information just between us and the students. It's really to make it publicly accessible. Um, So this year we will be having a ceremony. Unfortunately, due due to some work going on on the site, we cannot um, have 300 people besides the students on site this year because of that work. So it's going to be mostly for the students themselves. There's a descendant of the enslaved people that we're honoring this year who's been invited, as well as a couple other people, including Dennis, to come and speak. But it's going to be a little bit smaller. And then after the ceremony is done, all the information that the students have put together and we've put together becomes publicly available. All the documents we find go into our archives. The story of the individual goes onto our website. So even though the ceremony won't be as large and as public this year, people want to come learn. Um, they can come. They can find and read everything that the students have. And, and will there be a video of the event? Do you know? I hope or, so. Yeah. I hope so. It's great to be able to see. Most definitely. We want to make it as accessible as possible within our limitations. Uh, thank, thanks so much, Heather. Um, Deborah, I just wanted to briefly ask about the, any kind of measurable response you've had from from the town, from parents? Um. Well, we just started um, a, a strategic planning um, exercise in which we did out, went out and did our community survey and um, oh. data collection. Uh-huh. So we were this certainly the work we've been doing. You know, came hmm. up as as a theme and the importance of continuing it. One person said, um, you know, in spite of. Um, recognizing that the town is more heterogeneous, uh, there are still well-intentioned people who say there's no racism in Greenwich, either mm. in the past or present, right. and um, who see that as being unpatriotic to say to um, to po- to point out and highlight racism. So you know we 
we want to do our part uh, as a historical society to shine a light on right. and tell a fuller tell, tell a fuller <laughs> history. Um, and we can do that when we do that in a way that really is about an individual, a person. It just mm. gives it more. It, 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 it's hard to deny. It's hard to right. deny when you know who a person is and, and you begin to understand their story. Yeah. And let's hope more people um, understand that. Well, um, the second talk in this current series, moving on, was in fact not about slavery. It, in fact, it was about its opposite. Um, about a very successful community of freed or escaped, formerly enslaved or otherwise free African American and Native American people, Little Liberia in the south end of Bridgeport. But this history was almost totally obliterated, but this time by urban renewal. And um, as I said, unfortunately, Maisa Tisdale, who um, is the President and CEO of the Eliza and Mary, the Mary and Eliza Freeman Center in Bridgeport, um, is unable to be with us today. We hope, Maisa, that you um, recover um, from from um, your uh, cold. Um, but we have Stephanie with us, and Stephanie, you were working quite a bit with Maisa before she came on and gave her lecture, which everybody can still hear on the Greenwich Historical Society's site. Um, I wondered if you could give us a little bit of a thumbnail of what you understood uh, Little Liberia to be. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Of course. Thank you so much, David, for um, highlighting this this series uh, and Maisha's work as well. Uh, you know, I was so excited to work with Maisha after hearing her speak at a previous conference, um, also speaking about Little Liberia and the importance of African-American preservation, uh, which she gave at the Gilder Lehrman Center at Yale. Uh, and I was, I was deeply inspired by the story of Little oh. Liberia and her ongoing restoration and preservation efforts, um, which, which she has been engaged in since actually 1994, so for for quite a long time. Um, And Little Liberia actually was an early 1800s community, uh, a seafaring community of free people of color. Um, And research suggests that uh, the residents sought to establish this free city on American soil actually during slavery in Connecticut and Mm. the United States. Um, They were able to do so... um, through a variety of means, including men bringing their earnings home and then returning to sea. Uh, And many women actually owned or operated family business ventures uh, in which they developed, owned, and maintained property and really exercised leadership skills um, at a time when women in the United States didn't even have the right to vote. So it's it's fascinating, this story um, of little Liberian residents who are really outspoken advocates for human rights and... um, like-minded free people of color from around the country and uh, around the Atlantic joined this community and invested here. And this is an example of a story that was uh, almost completely forgotten. But then there were these two houses that remained that um, fairly miraculously had escaped demolition. Could you tell us um, what you know about those two houses? Certainly, yes. So the Mary and Eliza Freeman houses 
um, which were built circa 1848, um, were built by two accomplished businesswomen. Mary Freeman lived from 1815 to 1883, and Eliza from 1805 to 1862. Um, and the, the houses were, they're the only existing structures on their original foundation mm. of the original 36 structures that uh, comprise Little Liberia. Um, they are actually listed on the National Register of Historic Places. And back in 2018, these Freeman houses were designated one of America's 11 most endangered historic places. That, was, incre- that was an incredible moment to see these, these uh, houses that looked so te- in such a terrible condition being recognized nationally as um, really, really important monuments mm-hmm. that needed to be restored. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. Uh, and luckily, these, these preservation efforts are still underway. Um, there are a lot of really exciting things happening for the Freeman Center and for Maisa, which I know she would be thrilled to share with everyone. Um, but it, it's really coming along, and um, I think they're... There are a lot of great developments still still in the works. Right. And um, tell us a little of what you understand uh, Maisa's project to be. It's not simply bringing these houses back to the state that they were in, but it's a much larger project. Is that right? Correct. Yes, yes. So um, Maisa and, and the Freeman Center are focusing on a more sustainable method of recovering um, known as preservation-based equitable development, Mm -hmm. in which they're really focusing on revitalization that that centers on the cultural assets of the area. Um, And that the hope is that this will result in a climate-resilient cultural heritage site in Bridgeport South End. Um, and, and their goals are to you know, establish a sustainable African-American heritage education and research center, um, as well as to provide a forum and, and really build historical context for discussing community and statewide initiatives that promote racial healing and socioeconomic justice. And there's an economic side of this as well. That's the exciting part that it really is, um, it, it seems, a plan for both bringing history alive in this particular place, but also giving giving it um, a kind of uh, real economic uh, viability as well. Mm, certainly, yes, yes, very true. So I'm I'm just um, fascinated by both of these partic- two particular projects because they're based on houses. <laughs> I don't know. I have a fascination <laughs> with. Houses that last several centuries that have seen so much um, going on, going on. The Bush Holly House has been preserved, and its stories have been uh, brought to life over a very wide period of history. Um, and these other two houses were really um, virtually erased. Um, I just wanted to ask, in general, what's your your thought about the difference between? history that gets forgotten um, and history that's actually erased and um, the most effective ways of, of remembering um, history that's either been forgotten or that has almost been completely erased. Yeah. I, I think um, if I could speak, sure. the, um, you know, we, 
the the clues are there. You know, I, I think uh, I know with um, with the pro- project in Germany, the Stolpenstein project. You know that that was during World War or right mm-hmm. prior to World War Two. The Germans are famous for keeping fantastic records, and and so the the documents seem to be you know close to the surface. For us, it's it's hard to imagine, but in some of our town halls, we have records dating back to the 1630s and 1640s that the towns kept because that's how property using the right. the laws in those days. That's how you know using the British laws. That's how property was shared. The wills and probate inventories go back to the you know 1600s. So a lot of the things are there, and we talked earlier about reading across the grain. So part of it is reading an autobiography, say, of, of, of Lyman Beecher, extracting out as much as you can about enslaved people during that time period in the community he was in, and then start pulling the threads. Mm. And, and, and Heather told you a lot about how you just pull the, you, you find one document, uh, you pull another. Yeah. And I like to say, then you weave the stories together. Right. And, and, and so there's, it, a lot of the stuff is there, you know, and and I'm beginning to talk to people who lived in the American South who want to tell stories in the American South. And some of those towns were burned to the ground and some of those town halls hmm. uh, were destroyed during the American Civil War. So they struggle breaking through to the, you know, pre-Civil uh, War period. But... I think in the north here, we're lucky to be able to do that, and we love to preserve things, and we right. love to tell stories. So, And Deborah, any final thoughts? Well, I'm just thinking that, you know, the Bush Alley House has been a great survivor. Yes, I-95 I- almost uh, went right through it and, and erased it <laughs> yeah. if it wasn't for community people that reached out and really— um, you know, fought to have it, it it saved, and I'm thinking of this you know amazing effort to save these two almost forlorn <laughs> historic buildings here in mm-hmm. Bridgeport that are just overwhelmed by the you know industrial right. development on urban renewal all around it. And um, these these survivors are are very important because you it's hard to erase uh, history that when there's when there are these survive surviving monuments to the to the past. Right. Well, thank you so much for being here today, and thank you so much for the Shining a Light series. That's uh, really, really important. This is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County. You've been listening to our April 2022 edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, our monthly interview show on WPKN 89.5 FM. Our subject today was Shining a Light on some of the underrepresented voices in local history, and specifically the second annual series of lectures titled Shining a Light, organized by the Greenwich Historical Society, with speakers dedicated to interpreting, restoring, and preserving these hidden histories. I want to thank our guests today, Deborah Mackey and Heather Lodge and Stephanie Barnett from the Greenwich Historical Society and Dennis Cullison from the Witness Stones Project. If you missed part of the broadcast or just want to hear it again, you can hear the show on WPKN Podcasts on SoundCloud. I'm David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County. Please tune in Monday, May the 9th for the next edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture when my guest will be Richard Klein, retiring exhibitions director at the Aldridge Museum.